Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for your theme song. If any of you are interested in Walter's music, WalterParks.com and Devine Dial. As always, thank you for managing WPVMFM. And if you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And on Saturday morning, just as a reminder, my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, and I gather every Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Mountain Time and noon Eastern Time for our Imaginative Storm Riding Prompt of the Week session. We gather at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, as I said, on Zoom, and we write for an hour with writers from all over the place. Uh, we have a one fellow who zooms in from Johannesburg in South Africa. Another fellow comes to us from Rwanda. So we have a bit of a range. And if you would like to join us, you can find the information at imaginativestorm.com. That's imaginativestorm.com. You may know if you've been listening to the show, I have all kinds of creative people on the call with me. And sometimes I have people I've just met and other times I have people I've known for quite a while and I've collaborated with. Today I have Lynn Burney and she's based out of Paris. And Lynn and I have known each other for many years now. I think we met around 2006, 2007 when I was working in France, teaching some imaginative storm writing workshops and creativity work. And so when Lynn and I met, we hit it off. We had a, had a great time talking about the collaborative things that we do. We ended up calling each other Comrade. I called her Comrade L, and she called me Comrade J. And to this day, we still occasionally refer to each other as Comrade L, Comrade J. And Lynn is a coach. She's an executive coach. She has a coaching school. And I have Lynn on today because she and I just finished working on a creative project. I helped her as a manuscript coach. I coached her while she was writing her manuscript. And a few years ago, maybe three now, we met for lunch in Paris. And she said, I want to write a book. And I said, I'll be happy to help you. So now three years later, uh, Lynn's book is almost ready to go. So I thought, what better time than now to ask Lynn Burney to be on the show. So Lynn, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Hi, comrade. <laughs> Comrade L, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. <laughs> so thank you, Lynn, for agreeing to be with us today. And I've opened by talking about this book. We And on this show, people tune in and they're curious about writing. And a lot of the focus for this show is, is about writing and generating work and language and communication and art, culture, sometimes political science. Today, it's all about writing. So I would love for you just to take the floor and tell folks how you got the idea and how you've developed it, what your experiences have been. Well, initially, I wanted to write a professional book about clean coaching. I'm recognized as an expert in this type of coaching in France. And anybody who's anybody in the field is supposed to write a book. And of course, that makes their name and everybody wants to go work with them. And I can remember announcing, it is three years ago now, actually, 
that's what I was going to do. And I was going to hire James Nave to help me do it. And so that's when James and I met in Paris and I announced my great project to him. And then I proceeded to try and write it. Now, what happened was, as we all know, um, we got locked down. The COVID pandemic struck. And it seemed like a golden opportunity because nothing else was happening. So this is a perfect opportunity to start writing. But I wrote pieces. I wrote pieces about clean coaching. I tried lots of angles. I sent it all to James. He kept coming back to me and saying, is this what you want to write? And da, 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 da. And I think it may actually have gone on for a year like that. I'm not quite sure, but I know I tried for a very long time to write a book about my profession and it just did not come and then I don't know what happened I just know that at some point I said I know what I want to write I want to tell the story of my journey to St James the tomb of St James maybe there's a connection there James in Santiago so it's the Chemin de Compostelle in French or El Camino de Santiago in Spanish and the way of St. James in English. It's a long pilgrimage, one of the world's greatest pilgrimages. And my now husband and I walked that over four years and three seasons uh, 20 years ago. Actually, going on for 22 now. And once I started writing that story, I, I knew that's what I wanted to write. And James recognized that that's what I wanted to write. And what the amazing thing for me is that I really thought it was just, okay, I'll just tell the story. But I couldn't find my diaries. I'd lost my diaries. And to this day, I haven't been able to find them. And so I had no way of actually truly checking on the real journey that I made. Um, so I had, to, I had to actually, I didn't invent the story. I remembered it so well. And for the last 20 years, I've opened my coaching school. Each coaching class I've opened with a tale from the way and I use it as a metaphor for introducing people to a learning journey and of course that's what this this pilgrimage was for me it was a learning journey anyway I can still remember when I started sending episodes to James and he'd come back with things like yeah okay okay so he sort of encouraged me and then I finished the story and I wrote it I sent it all back to James I'd done some rewriting when he, I say when he, when you, James, read through the whole thing, you spend a lot of time making comments and asking questions on the whole manuscript. And one of the most amazing questions you ask me, and I feel embarrassed to say this, but you know, I remember you saying to me, but I'm the reader. And I know inside me, I thought, well, I don't give a damn about the reader. It's my story. I'm telling my story. And it was it's sort of in that moment that I realized, oh, oh, I'm, I'm actually writing a story not just for me. I actually do want people to read this. And there are such, there's such a thing as a reader. <laughs> I just can't believe I'm saying this. But anyway, I, I can remember that really wake-up moment when I realized that you, James, were actually my very first reader and that you actually wanted to know stuff that I hadn't written. And so then began an awareness of, oh, I'm telling a story for readers and he wants me to embellish my story. So I started adding anecdotes 
And then I got really engaged in telling my anecdotes and weaving it into the story. And when it was finally finished, you suggested that it go to a real bona fide editor. Now, what's an editor, I said. I can't believe I said these things. I mean, I'm a very keen reader. I love reading books. I've read books all my life. But what's an editor? Ah, and I thought it would be, you know, like a school teacher who goes through it and, you know, underlines things in red and says, could do better. <laughs> so I was sort of not exactly looking forward to getting this manuscript back from a very professional editor, Janet Byrne. And when it came back, I realized, oh my gosh, this is what editing is. An editor turns your manuscript into something very concise, precise, readable, flowing. And it gave me great joy to read my own, my own story. And so between you, James, who asked me all those amazing essential questions and said things like well what have you said yes to in your life you know you asked me questions that were what I call fabulous coaching questions what have you said yes to in your life and finally the book is about my saying yes to a pilgrimage and then saying yes to rewriting the whole thing not once twice maybe three times and then saying yes to an editor and the final yes was how to publish it, what's publishing. I don't know what a publisher does. I think so. James introduced me to KN Literary, another American firm. And, you know, they talked about things like having a concierge. And I said, well, you know, I live in Paris. Concierge in my part of the world polishes your doorknobs. I mean, I don't want somebody to polish with doorknobs, I want somebody to publish my book. <laughs> so, and then, uh, I mean, I, it sort of it feels quite long-winded to talk about this, but it was such a discovery to realize how complex the design of a book is, how much work goes into editing it. I mean, writing it is almost an incidental. Now, of course, that's that's not true, but the editing is just as important as the writing, and the publishing is a very the design and the publishing is actually very complex. I understand why publishers do not take on every Joe Blow who writes a book. It's, it costs a lot to publish a book. And so I'm, in the, I'm almost at the point of the book itself. It's going through its final proofreading phase. And then it's ready to go to the printers. And then it's ready to go on the market. And that whole birth of a book has been a most extraordinary journey, almost as exciting as the actual way of St. James. I should call it the way of St. James, actually, when I think about it. It is James's way. <laughs> I don't know what it will be like to hold a book in my hands that I have written and has been designed and published. I don't know what that will be like. But I do know the journey up until now has been just extraordinary. And I, I'm so, so pleased that James, you said, yeah, sure, I'll help you with that. I didn't know what I was embarking on, but I do now. I really do now.
Well, we never know what we're embarking on when we come up with some idea to make a creative offering. It always seems like it's going to go left and it goes right, or it goes, you think it's going to go right, it goes left or forward. When we talked that day in the cafe at the train station, beautiful place. I love that lunch. It's probably one of the finest lunches I've had in a long, long time. Of course, we haven't had many lately, but since COVID, you did say, I want to write a book about coaching. And when I first started to help you with it, I said, let me be your student. I will take whatever you give me in the book and I will learn how to be a coach based on your, your work. And I remember one of the things I was so impressed with about the work you did, you started out trying to do that. And you realized within maybe three, four months, that was not of any interest to you at all. And most people will plow on trying to do the book about coaching because they need to give it to their students. You gave that free form to leave and invited the journey to the tomb of St. James in, and off it went. Now you have a book about coaching. This is a proper book that will teach people how to think from a coaching point of view. So with that in mind, tell us a bit about clean coaching, clean language, so people will have a background in that philosophy, and maybe you can read a bit from your manuscript so we can get a sense of that as well. Clean coaching. Well, I clean language, clean space, and the power of six were three techniques invented, developed by David Grove, a fellow New Zealander, who died very early in his life at 58, in 2000, January 2008. From that moment on, I knew I wanted to transmit to others what I had learned from him. And I was already teaching coaching, and this was an advanced form of coaching. So what is it really? Clean language is actually more a question of clean questions. So they are, there are nine basic uh, questions, 18 specialized questions or 18 altogether that have been very finely honed or were very finely honed by David Grove and they come with a specific syntax and these questions are designed to accompany a client in the discovery of his metaphorical landscape so his inner world and the way he's coded his experience of the world and always with a view to expanding his perception of the world and to, in some ways, heal the wounded child within. And clean space, which was a later technique, and that's when I met him, is basically using the metaphor of space to explore the way one is coded uh, one's experience of life. And the power of six is using um, the iteration of six to bring from within that which the client already knows but doesn't know that he knows. So it's a very fine and refined coaching technique. And it's not everybody's cup of tea, but all the way through the book, I ask people questions which invite people to 
explore their own experience of the world and the way they've coded it themselves. As for reading a passage from my book, I'd be happy to do that. Why not start at the beginning? It's called Setting Out. So on April 14, a week before Easter, we touched down at Rodez Airport in central southern France. Our attire may have raised the odd eyebrow, given that we were on the early morning business flight out of Orly, but otherwise we were just another middle-aged couple flying in from the capital, ostensibly to begin a walking tour. I'd had a few coaching clients the day before we left, and Richard, a journalist, had completed an article he'd been writing for L'Express. It was pretty much business as usual, just another event in a busy calendar year. It was good to take time off, to do something different, get a bit of excitement in the form of the unknown, an adventure, no apparent connection to the startling yes of February. I was well-dressed for the occasion, elegant light grey walking trousers that unzipped down to shorts, quick dry, colour-coordinated shirt, dark brown leather sun hat that would work in the Australian outback or on a Paris boulevard, and a compact new backpack I had bought based on advice offered in the latest guidebooks. No one would have been aware of how carefully Richard had packed and repacked his backpack, nor would anyone have immediately noticed the little extras I had added to mine, the just-in-case essentials like body cream, perfume, and something nice to put on in the evening. Tea didn't count as an extra. My boots were not new. I'd worn them on many hikes over the past 20 years. They were made of soft brown leather, reinforced at the ankles, and they were definitely ready to go. So we were standing in a near, nearly empty airport in Rodez, ready to begin the adventure, when I remembered we needed water. Luckily, bottled spring water was available over the counter, so there was no immediate challenge to my role as medieval pilgrim on the road to Santiago. What a pilgrim in the 21st century was like had no shape or size in my mind as I set out from the airport. I had this vague feeling that a genuine pilgrim would have thought of water as the most essential part of her equipment. But then I also thought she would probably not have taken a plane to Rodez either. In reality, I didn't give any of this much thought. I was at the beginning of something enthusiastic, positive, energetic, and well-dressed. We set out at a good stride. Richard walked ahead. We later invested in a pedometer so we could keep track of the distances we were covering. But on that first day, over country tracks and trails, I had no idea how far we'd gone until I realized that I was having difficulty keeping up with Richard. That was already a new experience. I was a businesswoman, well familiar with the demands of running a small operation and maintaining a large network but my state of mind at the beginning of this pilgrimage resembled that of a young child expecting to be shown the delights of the French countryside. It peeved me to have to get on with the walking and manage it on my own. I tried to keep myself amused and interested in the unchanging landscape, but like a child, I felt I wanted some entertainment at some point. I did maintain a good rhythm that first morning. The sun shone, an unimpeded blue in a noonday sky, the breeze was fresh, and signs of spring peeped above the earth in pert yellows and shy reds. About lunchtime, it was clear to me that I had no idea where I was going. Lack of investment in the planning phase was the obvious explanation. It wouldn't have mattered had I not started to feel weary and disgruntled. 
I was in love with the romance of following a medieval trail to the tomb of St. James in Spain, as so many well-meaning feet had done since the Middle Ages. But now that my muscles and bones were actually engaged in the project, the 50-year-old wanted times, distances, and an ETA. The adult realized that she needed to measure her effort. She absolutely needed to know where she was going to spend that first night. San Diego was one thing, and that was likely years ahead. The first night was another. Despite my resounding initial yes, I had entrusted all the logistics to Richard. I had slipped easily and willingly into little girl happy to follow dad on an adventure. Richard fell just as easily into his preferred roles of dad and planner. All was well until it wasn't, and I wanted answers to a few practical questions. Had I not abdicated all responsibility for the planning of this first stage of the pilgrimage, I would have known that we were going to Marciac, and that was a 26-kilometre walk from Rodez Airport. I may even have been able to pace myself over that first day on the road, but I knew nothing and had done nothing to change that. It wasn't the first time in my life an abdication of responsibility had gotten me into trouble. The headmistress of Christchurch Girls High had once devoted an entire morning's assembly of over 500 students to the subject of responsibility, and it ended with a request for Lynn Burney to report to her office immediately. I was severely reprimanded in the privacy of her office about my responsibility as team captain to forego pleasures like playing basketball with friends and instead attend training sessions. The coach, I was told, had been most unhappy. I left the headmistress's office riddled with guilt and full of promises to mend my ways. I never dared say that I thought the coach was adult and that I didn't like her training techniques. She must have known, and this was her revenge. My lack of dedication to logistics and the ease with which I was willing to trust that all would be well despite scanty planning manifested itself early in my relationship with Richard and in my career. Once, I took a suburban train to get to Caen in the north of France. I had a professional engagement and was focused on the work ahead, not on how to get there. It was winter. It was dark. I was on my own. I had three heavy bags. I knew I had to change trains somewhere after leaving the main station in Paris. I had not written down the name of the village where I was to transfer to Caen. I spoke French quite well, but I wasn't certain I'd heard well when the name of the station where I thought I had to change was announced. I was close to panic. As the doors of the carriage started to close, I made a snap decision, tossed the bags onto the platform, threw myself between the sliding doors and landed on a cold concrete slab. I watched the train pull away slowly and then the night swallowed me up. It was freezing. The wind increased the chill factor by several degrees. I was afraid and furious at the same time. My supreme Kiwi confidence in myself was shaken to its roots by a French reality. I located a telephone box despite the blackness of the night, found some coins in my purse, called Richard, burst into tears, tried to pronounce the name of the station written on the signpost at the end of the platform, and between sobs told him I was utterly lost and hadn't a clue what to do. He drove through the night to find me, picked me up, 
and drove me a further two hours to my destination. I felt foolish and guilty and thankful. I did a great job professionally the following day, but I swore I would get someone else to organize travel the next time. So in many ways, not knowing or remembering where we were staying that first night of our journey to San Diego was par for the course. I liked being able to rely on Richard to determine each day's destination. There was no doubt something deeply satisfying in feeling taken care of, of not being the eldest. My child played to his father. This game would not be without consequences. We're going to Marciac, Richard said when I finally asked him. He could have said Timbuktu and I would have been just as wise. The afternoon wore on. My feet hurt. My backpack was too heavy. My keen beginning was now just a hard slog. I needed to know in very precise terms how much further we had to go. Without the numbers, I had no language to sweet talk my body with, at least until Marciac. The pain in my middle-aged body shook me again and again back to my adult self. I was no child out for a trot in the park. The adventure would not be a, just a fun outing. I could not leave everything to Richard if I wanted this to be something that we shared. He loved to plan and I loved to do. We would need to find ways of respecting each other's preferred way of functioning while sharing tasks as two consenting adults. Question, when you set out on a journey, what is most important to you? Does anything change if the journey is a shared one? When you were reading that, your first time reading it in public? Yes. What kind of emotional experience did you have going through it for the listeners? <laughs> you know, those people I never I decided I wasn't going to think about. <laughs> well, I have to say that I really enjoyed telling the tale. I really do. And reading it just um I just remember so clearly the anecdotes, the anecdotal material. It's true. It's very true. Yeah. So the questions in the book, the one that you just read, re repeat that question again. Does anything change if the journey is a shared one? Can you tell us why that would be a clean question? These questions are just really good coaching questions. They would not be recognized as such as a clean question. It's clean in the sense that I'm interested in your experience as a reader, and I'm interested in inviting you to explore your own experience, but they're not clean questions per se. As I repeat myself, they're just very good coaching questions. So people listening may be wondering what would the difference be? And they may be thinking, I would like to ask clean questions. So what okay. is the coding that's behind the, the clean question? Yeah. Well, for example, if you were to say, um, I'd really like to go on a journey. And my question to you would end a journey. And what kind of journey would that journey be when it's a journey that you want to go on? So you would hear in my voice an iteration of your own question, of your own words. You would hear an emphasis on the keyword journey. And you would also feel an invitation to slow down and really enter into your own thinking process. And when people come to you and you use this kind of technique, what are they often after? What are you trying to get them to accomplish? And with this book, is it moving in a similar direction? Um, this 
book is sharing my own journey and inviting them to go on their own journey. And because we don't have an ongoing relationship, in other words, I might ask this question, they might answer it, but I can't continue to question them because we're not working together. Let, let me tell you what clean means anyway. It's a, a term that David coined because it really indicated that by being clean as a facilitator or a coach or a therapist, you are reducing the amount of interference that you have in the client's experience of the world. So I would be working as a clean coach, I would be working exclusively with the language of the client and I would be teasing out of him his own experience so that he could recognize it. But the starting point will always be, what would you like to have happen? So there's, there is no coaching if there is no client objective or no client desire or no direction for the energy of the client. All of the energy in this book is, in fact, my own energy, but I'm inviting somebody to explore their own experience. So the book is meant to be a shared experience because I also invite people, of course, to ask other people these questions. A coach's work is based on her capacity to ask questions. And if she's asking clean questions, she will be working exclusively with the language of the client because the client is not present in this text as such. I can't work with the client's language but the client can certainly, the reader can certainly work with my language. What are some of the other stories that came out of your work that you maybe had forgotten that emerged and surprised you? What I really enjoyed, in fact, getting in contact again with stories that I'd forgotten. One of the things that I took great delight in recounting was when, I don't know how old it was, I think it must have been about nine or ten maybe, eight, nine or ten roughly, me and the boy next door had wrecked the neighbor's backyard while they were away on holiday. And it means it was so fabulous to be a delinquent. I mean, we added, we tore out all the vegetables, we nuggeted the back, the back porch, um, the back porch, we nuggeted it with black nugget. We took all the nails out of um, the boy's go-kart and it fell apart. It was fantastic. It was such a, such a glorious moment of pure destruction. And then I lived in utter fear for three days, um, waiting for the neighbors to come home and tell my father. And sure enough, they did. And I got the hiding of my life. Oh, <laughs> these are the kind of things that I remember. But I was cured of my delinquent ways. That's for true, for sure. But I, I've never forgotten the absolute glee I experienced in total destruction. Oh, I'm, I'm, there's something shocking about the fact how much I loved it. But then I didn't feel any shame about doing. I just felt really guilty about being caught. <laughs> this is absolutely terrible. But in the same episode, I met Monte Cruzi. It's the Mount of the Iron Cross. All pilgrims who pass that way leave little messages and rocks. And so there's a mountain of rocks and messages. And it's sort of like looking at a mountain of sin. Sitting there looking at this mountain, I was thinking about all the things that I'd done in my life that I was ashamed of. And this was one thing I wasn't ashamed of, but I could have been severely punished for. But I also remembered another anecdote where I was also quite young 
and I cheated a girl at school out of a valuable stamp and I knew I was doing it. And curiously enough, I, even to this day at almost 70 years old, I feel guilty about that. And I think it's because I knew what I was doing and she was an innocent. She didn't know that she was being cheated and I knew I was cheating her. It's a silly story, but it's something that I've never forgotten, really, really never forgotten. Those are the kinds of things that I remembered while I was telling the story of my journey to St. James. And on the way, as you walk through town after town, did the towns all run together or did they stand out as individual towns in your memory? Some towns stood out, but for strange reasons. And one town in Spain, and I'm not even going to remember the name of it talking to you now, but the room we stayed in, we didn't stay in, a, in an auberge espanol, so we didn't stay in a hostel. We, took a, we stayed a night in a hotel in a very small village, and the room had these azure blue curtains. And I can remember falling asleep with the, the breeze coming through the curtains, and the color of the curtains was so soothing to my eyes. And I remember the following morning getting up very early before sunlight and hearing on the radio in the bar downstairs um, Donovan singing, ah, but I may as well try and catch the wind. And I felt so nostalgic. It just took me back to New Zealand, to, to past loves, to... I remember the town, but curious, I don't remember. I can see the bar. I can see the, the guy behind the bar. I can see Richard and I sitting on bar stilts. I can still see the curtains, these beautiful blue curtains, nylon curtains. I can still feel the peace of falling into a deep sleep. And I can feel also the, the sense of nostalgia and of just leaving the bar and walking on again and again and again. Ah. Oh, Incredible. Yeah, I do. I do remember towns. No, not all the towns merged one into the other. No, not at all. When you embarked on this journey, you were coming from Paris, you and Richard. I know that you're not a particularly devout religious person. Mm -mm. And yet you went on a religious pilgrimage. You visited Mm. a lot of churches. You bumped into people who worked in the churches. You had to check in with the priest along the way to get your stamp certified. What changed in the course of the journey regarding how you connect religiously to your life, or did anything change? Uh, It deepened my sense of communion with the beauty and love in the universe. So it deepened my spirituality. If anything, it also heightened my distrust of religious institutions. And in this case, of course, it's the Catholic Church. I tell some pretty hairy stories about my meeting with priests in various places in the world. Basically, if the church has this wonderful impact on people and makes us and them more kindly loving people towards our fellow 
human beings, I'm okay with it. Did it do anything to make me more religious? No, definitely not. Not religious, no. What about mistrusting the institutions? Why did your mistrust of the institutions grow? Well, to be fairly obvious, I'm a woman. Now, I've never understood how women can embrace religious institutions that have punished them for donkey's years. But I really, really, I mean, I stayed in one place in Samos in Spain, which is really a bastion of Catholicism and a very famous monastery. And they offer free accommodation to all pilgrims. And so, you know, I, I should be very grateful. But the atmosphere inside this place really, I didn't feel welcome. And I thought, well, it's probably because I'm a woman. And then I thought, oh, maybe they're victims of their own hospitality. Maybe it's too much to offer so many pilgrims free hospitality. I don't know. I really don't know. Um, I saw a lot of creaking, groaning, old uh, women clad in black. And I thought, I wonder what their life has been inside an institution like this. And in so many churches, you've got lots of little old women who run around changing the flowers and they, they never look like happy people to me. They really don't. And I think, why are they so engaged with these institutions serving these priests? I haven't a clue. I really don't know why. Um, and of course, in one of the, when I arrived in, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the cathedral, in the cathedral in San Diego, I was severely underwhelmed. It, I felt as if no, the pilgrimage is not about this arrival. And yet, of course, it was, but it was more about the, the camaraderie and the joy people were expressing and sharing with everybody outside the cathedral. And then, of course, there was the big Botafumurio, the big incense-burning Catholic mass inside the, the, the cathedral for pilgrims, which is really impressive. I mean, it's a great show. I mean, I have to hand it to the church. They do a really great show. It's really spectacular. And in Spain, of course, the that version of Catholicism is particularly bloody and gory. Scenes of Christ in his agony and it doesn't appeal to my Protestant cultural background, basically. The spirit of the way was in the people that I met, in the hospitality I received, in the, in the beauty of the landscapes, in the, in, the, in, the, in the dealing with an aching body and coming, and coming closer to the Christ, to the real Christ and his disciples and the love that was at the origin of Christianity and the love that drove a Christ to wash the feet of his disciples. It was a coming closer to Christ and not the church. That's insightful. And when the journey was over and you came back to Paris, back to your life, how did the insights you gained on the journey over the four seasons or the many seasons, how did those insights inform the way you conducted and the way you conduct your business as the leader of a school, one of the highly recognized coaches in, in France? It's very hard to 
say that with great clarity and assertion. I would say that it was part of the maturing of my soul. And with the maturing of the soul comes more tolerance, comes more capacity to receive others in their own suffering, in their own pain, um, and their own joys. It's like a flowering. And I think maybe this is what people do anyway. The four years of walking in over three seasons, four years and three seasons, I think was a flowering process that was accelerated. I think, you know, I think all of us in some way go on a life's journey and at some point there is an opportunity to flower and we either accept that opportunity or we don't. Coaching is a way of accelerating the flowering of the soul. The walking of the Camino is a, an acceleration of the flowering of the soul. And what do I mean by the flowering of the soul? I mean this opening of the heart to receive others, to find your own authenticity, to be able to be available. It's not about washing somebody's feet, but the equivalent in our uh, job would be our capacity to listen and receive. And your book will be coming out soon. You will be receiving your book. <laughs> yeah. When do you think this will happen? Do you have a time of arrival? What's the estimate? On the contract, it says the 6th of August. Um, and I think that's sort of like a deadline for, for KN Literary. But I have a feeling that it will probably be ready before then. I could be wrong. I'm hoping that maybe it'll be ready for the summer, so perhaps the beginning of July rather than the beginning of August. But but I, but if it's not, that's all right too. I'm going to celebrate it. Um, I'm going to celebrate 22 years of um, the LKB School of Coaching, my 70 years of Earthwalk, and the the appearance of my first book on the 6th of October on a riverboat uh, on the Seine and near Pont Neuf um, this year. So, so, so I'm, I'm, it's something to look forward to. And you and I have a writer's workshop the following two days. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to this event. I didn't know it was going to be on the Seine. Near Point yeah. Neuf. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. How big is the riverboat? Well, it's got a capacity of 100 people, so it should be okay. And we can spill out onto the, onto the quay. So we can, we can spill out. The, 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 you know, traffic does, is not allowed to run along the, the, the quay anymore. So uh, people will, we just, just pray that it's an Indian summer and the sixth of the night of sixth of October is a balmy late summer night. <laughs> well, we'll we'll keep that in, in mind. So before we go, tell people your website so they can keep up with you as well as uh, prepare for receiving the book. Okay, thank you. LKB uh, hyphen coaching.com 
lkb-coaching.com. And it's a beautiful website, I have to say, because Mary Schaefer of Inscape Design Mm. built that website for you and the colors fit Mm. perfectly. So those of you out there listening, if you would like to know more about Lynn, lkb-coaching.com. And if you would like to see a terrific Squarespace website, lkb-coaching.com is also a place to to look. It's a beautiful piece of work. and Yeah, it is. And the work that you've done over the last three years, the thing I admire most about it, among many things, you stayed with it. You were determined. Mm-hmm. You didn't give up. You were determined to carry it all the way through to the end. So when we gather on that balmy October night, near Point Neuf on the Seine, in the neighborhood that I've always been going to because my good friend John Van Hassel lives a stone's throw from that bridge, Point Neuf. So I know that territory, and it's just a beautiful spot to have a party. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. (laughs) And thank you ever so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Thanks, Lynn. Thank you for asking me some tricky questions. And there you go, my friends, a conversation with Lynn Burney, talking about the process she went through to write her new book, Once a Pilgrim, Always a Coach. So I thank you ever so much for listening to the show, and I hope you enjoyed it. And you have been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We always broadcast this show first on WPVM LP Asheville and also on Cultural Energy Radio KCEI FM out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for the theme song. We appreciate your good music. If you'd like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I would love to hear from you. If you'd like to join me and my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, any Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, we host an imaginative storm writing prompt of the week session. Writers like Lynn and other people gather. We, We write for 10 minutes, and then we read our work. Ten minutes is longer than you think, so tune in and see what happens. ImaginativeStorm.com. That's ImaginativeStorm.com. So once again, thank you ever so much for being part of this show, tuning in, and I do hope you come back again very soon. Until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.